We started this uh, series, A New Heart, with this kind of call from God. It's the call that's been given to all people to whom God seeks to enter into a relationship. And so we see this call throughout all of scripture. It was the call of Noah and Abraham. It was the call of Israel as a nation. It's the call of every follower of Jesus, even today. And the call is this, don't be captured by the culture. Instead, we're to offer the culture a viable contrast, another way to live, another way to think, another way to function in the world that is often not in line with God's word, God's will, God's way. And so we're to offer the world a way to live that seems counterintuitive to a lot of things that were told and that were taught in scripture. But it's about how someone is to align themselves with the kingdom of God. How we function in this kingdom that often is at odds with the culture that we live in today. And so um, we look at the life of Jesus. We go, Jesus lived a life that was counter cultural. He functioned in a way that was at odds with the world around him. And people often didn't understand what he was doing because it was so different from what everybody else did. And so if we're going to live this kind of countercultural lifestyle, we need a heart transplant. That's what Ezekiel is getting at in his letter. Ezekiel will say that what we need is for God to take our heart of stone and give to us a heart of flesh. And the problem is that process of getting a new heart, it can be painful at times because God has to help us recognize the priorities of our lives um, and where those priorities don't align with his kingdom and when they align with the culture. So I was just thinking about um, Ray's communion talk and he mentioned a passage from uh, his Bible reading this morning where Jesus talks about giving, giving peace to people. And he makes this statement, I don't give you peace like the world gives peace. And I'm standing over there thinking, how does the world give gifts? And it, and it struck me while I'm over there the world gives gifts with strings attached, right? I'm gonna give you a gift, uh, but I'm often giving you that gift to simply encourage the kind of behavior that I want you to have. I'm gonna give you that gift, but, but if you start doing things I don't want you to do, I'm gonna take that gift away. Because as long as you're living the way I want to, you're doing the things I want to, you're, re you're respecting me, you're honoring me, you're obeying me, you can have these gifts, but when you start going off, I'm gonna take those gifts back. And we see in scripture that God gives these gifts and he says, I'm gonna give you this gift and it's just yours. That's a totally different way. It's counter culture. It's about kingdom living instead of living in the culture. And so this idea that we have of getting a new heart and of living kind of counter cultural to, with the world, it requires us to be honest. And that's difficult in our lives today. We don't wanna be transparent, we don't wanna be honest, and, and it requires us really to be honest about who or what we actually worship in our lives. 
So the parts of the, our lives and, and the parts of our lives that we want to hide, which often are the things we really worship, like we want it to be God, but in reality, sometimes it's not. And so the parts of our lives that we want to hide, not only are those hidden parts we know eventually exposed, like the truth eventually comes out. You, you know that term, fake it till you make it? That's not really the way it, it goes. You, you fake it. Uh, for a while, and then the truth comes out, and then you don't make it uh, at all, usually. That's the way it goes. Now, no matter how hard we try to hide things from God, He always sees. He always knows. He knows exactly where our heart lies. He knows exactly what we really worship, no matter what we say we worship. And so we're going to look today, really quickly, at Ezekiel chapter 8, and um, we're going to look really at the whole chapter, but I'm going to give you the first four verses here, and then we're going to kind of, I'm going to kind of paraphrase and sum up uh, the rest of chapter eight of Ezekiel. Um, but if you want to follow along today, if you're here or joining us online, you can go to reallifecc.us, click uh, the my message notes link at the bottom there. You just kind of scroll down through there. There'll be a picture. You can click that and uh, the notes from today's message will be on there. And there'll be some stuff uh, later on the message and it'll kind of give you a little clearer way to see that. So if you want to follow along that way, go ahead. But we're going to be in Ezekiel. First four verses. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, that's pretty specific, isn't it? Like we see Ezekiel over and over, he's giving these very specific things. He says, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah. So these are the exiled people. Remember, Ezekiel lives at a Jewish settlement refugee camp near the Kibar Canal. It was a drainage ditch outside the city of Babylon. And so he'd gathered all the, Israel, uh, the elders of Judah, these exiled elders, and they were sitting before him in his house. And he says, when I'm sitting there, the hand of the Lord God fell upon me. And we talked about that hand of the Lord thing last week. So the hand of the Lord fell on me there and I looked and behold, there was a form that had the appearance of a man. So it looked kind of like it could have been a man. And below his waist was what looked like fire, so flames of fire. But from the waist and above, it was something like the appearance of brightness. And so he's trying to express this. He says it's like gleaming metal. And he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my, of my head. So this form of a man reaches out and grabs Ezekiel by the hair. That's not very fun. And the spirit, he says, lifted me up. So lifted him up by the hair, lifted him up between earth and heaven, and then brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court that faces north, where was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of God, the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in, in the valley. So Ezekiel has taken another vision of God. This time, uh, instead of seeing the chariot throne of God coming from Jerusalem to Babylon, Ezekiel is taken from Babylon. He's taken back to Jerusalem specifically 
to the temple compound, so the temple of God where God's presence was. And he says, the very glory of God that I saw coming on that chariot throne of God when I was in Babylon, I see that very presence of God here at the temple. And that makes sense to Ezekiel because remember God's presence was tied at that time to the Ark of the Covenant, which was placed in the Holy of Holies. It was the back section of the temple of God. It was the hot spot of God's presence. And so as you got closer to that Ark of the Covenant, like, got, like think about it like getting closer to the sun. The closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous the sun becomes. And that was kind of what it was like uh, at the Ark of the Covenant. And so Ezekiel is taken back to the temple. He sees the presence of God where he would expect it, but he sees some other things there that he uh, does not expect. So um, Ezekiel's there in Babylon. And he gets kind of yanked up from his seat by the hair. You ever been jerked by your hair by your parents when you're when you're a kid? Like you're running. Today, parents don't do that. But when I was a kid <laughs> and I had hair, parents absolutely like you just, you're running by, you're doing something you're not supposed to, and they're just gonna reach out and grab whatever they can grab. They're gonna grab a fistful of whatever they can get a hold of. And so sometimes it was it was hair, and you get yanked by the hair. That is not a pleasant feeling, right? This is not fun at all. And so you, you think like Ezekiel says that he sees this vision of this, this appearance. It looks like kind of a man. And then this God-like form or figure, it grabs Ezekiel by the hair and it lifts him up out of his chair. And, and we kind of look at that and go, that's a violent image, right? That is, that is not a pleasant thought. Like I don't want to be yanked up out of my I mean, it's why I shave my head. Uh, I don't want God to yank me up by the hair. I'm like, I, that does not, uh, not sound like uh, very much fun to me. But, and I wondered about, like, this seems like a very violent image of this God who, you know, we say is supposed to be loving and kind and considerate. Why is he responding to Ezekiel like this? And so I got to thinking about that. And I think we see the reason or part of the reason why there's this kind of violent image as we begin to read through the text. But before we get to the rest of that, I think what we need to start with this morning is this idea. Um, the story of God's relationship with Israel, and it begins with his call of Abraham. When we go back to the early in Genesis, God calls Abraham out of his homeland, and he says, I want you to follow me. I want you to go to the land. I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. And there's all of these things that happen between Abraham and God as they move through, and then, and then it extends to Abraham's kids, Isaac and Jacob, and, and, and through on uh, Moses and to Mount Mount Sinai, and you get the whole nation of Israel. And when you break this down and look at it, what we see is almost an exact replica of an ancient Eastern wedding ceremony. It's really an amazing picture. Um, in fact, if you go way back, um, there was a, a, an oath, it's called the blood path, that a father-in-law would walk through with his son-in-law. And I kind of missed it with Easton, but I think maybe we'll try it. I'll explain it to you. 
uh, there's this story in Genesis where God speaks to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want you to get, I don't remember what the animals were. It's like, I want you to get a calf and I want you to get a bull and I want you to get a couple uh, birds. And the next thing that happens is Abraham gets those animals, he cuts them in half, he builds altars and he places the halves on these altars. And you're like, God never told him to do that. What's going on? was because Abraham, based on the uh, offerings that God told him to get, knew exactly what was going to happen. God and Abraham were gonna enter into a blood pact. Now this blood oath or blood pact was something that a father-in-law and a a son-in-law would enter into. And each of them had a half of this thing. Uh, And the father-in-law was saying, I'm gonna provide to you this uh, girl, in my case, who's perfect and wonderful and does everything right. Am I getting that right, Tristan? <laughs> and, and I'm gonna give you this daughter and you as my son-in-law, you have to promise some things to me as well. And then each of them would walk down between these uh, uh, animals that had been sacrificed. There'd be a pool of blood and they would walk through it and the blood would splatter up on their garment. And the idea was this, if either of the two people who walked the blood path didn't do what they were supposed to do in that covenant, the other one had the right to kill them. This is a serious thing. If you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I get to do to you what we just did to these animals. That's the idea of the blood pact. And so God and Abraham enter into this thing. It's the beginning of a marriage ceremony. We go on and on through the story and you even get to Mount Sinai and there's this really incredible moment where Moses goes up on the mountain and all the people are at the bottom and God gives to Moses what we call the 10 commandments. But in wedding speak, that's called the ketubah. And the ketubah is what the uh, groom would write out. He was like, uh, these are the tenants that I want my marriage to be built on. And there were some of those things are like, as the groom to my bride, here's what I'm gonna do. Here's how I expect our relationship to look like. And then here's some things that you can expect from me or, or that kind of thing. That's what the ketubah was about. And when the ketubah was issued to the bride, she had an opportunity once she heard that to either accept it or reject it. And so what Moses comes down the mountain with is not just what we call the 10 commandments. He's coming down with his ketubah, with this contract that he's going to enter into with his bride, the nation of Israel. And if you know the story, what does Moses find when he comes down the mountain? What's Israel doing? Everything wrong. They have, they have made a golden calf. They have begun to worship it as their God. Uh, Part of that worship was sexual immorality. And so there was all kinds of things going on. And Moses brings God's ketubah down to the people. And okay, let me just, I'm gonna try not to be crude, but let me just explain it to you. You've all been to weddings. Let's say you go to a wedding and the groom and the preacher, they step off to the side to work on this marriage contract kind of thing. And while they're doing that, the wife decides to, Um, get busy with a groomsman on the stage in front of the wedding party. And the groom comes back in and he finds his bride-to-be involved with this other man on the stage. This is the picture 
of Moses. Come, like This is why he throws the Ten Commands, the Ketubah, on the ground. It's why he's so angry. He's like, hey, we, we haven't even sealed the deal yet, and you're sealing the deal with somebody else. This is not right. Any of the rest of us would have said, if this is the way the rest of our marriage is going to go, I'm done. I'm out. That's it. But God doesn't do that. And so we see in the relationship between God and his bride that the bride, Israel, in the story of Israel's history, constantly and consistently engages in adultery by worshiping false gods and idols. And it's not surprising to God, right? Because Israel, his bride, started that on his very wedding day. And so this is at least part of the reason why Israel is in exile in the first place, because they have been unfaithful to their spouse. They've been unfaithful to God. They have broken the ketubah. They're not following this relationship set of rules that they were supposed to follow to have this good, solid, foundational marriage. And it's part of why God reacts the way he does to Ezekiel. God is not happy with this situation. Israel not only has committed adultery again um, for the umpteenth time, like they're just doing it again, but they're in exile because of their adultery, and then what are they doing? They're committing adultery on top of their adultery. And so what happens next is that God in this vision, he takes Zeke back to Jerusalem and he's gonna show Ezekiel what's happening in his hometown and it's very disturbing. So I'm gonna sum this up for you real quick. The first vision that uh, Ezekiel is shown by God is outside of the north gate. So um, the temple kind of faces that direction. People come in from the north typically and outside of the temple complex, there's this gate uh, that people have to enter into. And outside of that gate, they have set up what is probably an Asherah pole, this idol that they have built out there. So as the Jewish people who are left, there were some Jews left back in Jerusalem. As they approach God's holy temple, there is a phallic idol right at the doors as you go into the temple. And so that probably, according to some of the commentators, it probably represented the popular God of the people. This is who the average person in Jerusalem was worshiping, and Asherah was the chief god of the Canaanites. Now, why is that important? God drove out the Canaanites from the promised land because of their detestable acts of worship, their wicked way that they worshiped these gods, uh, this god called Asherah. They did some pretty terrible things associated with that worship, and God drove them out of their land because of this idol worship. And now what was Jerusalem doing? What were the people of Israel doing? They were doing exactly the same things that the people who were there before them were doing. The second vision that God shows Ezekiel is inside the temple compound, but it's off to the side. It's where the priests had their housing. Uh, so when a priest would come on duty, they would have houses and they, or these apartments and they would live in those while they worked their month. And so what Ezekiel sees as he kind of digs through the wall there is about 70 of these elders of the people of Israel and they're hiding out in this room together. And it says they have painted these murals on the wall of all kinds of detestable creatures and insects. They're the gods, really, that the Egyptian 
Egyptians worshiped. Remember the plagues of God, um, the, the Nile, the gnats, the frogs. I Egypt worshiped a whole bunch of insects as God. You can see that in the reliefs that they paint, uh, the things that they paint on the walls of their uh, pyramids and all that stuff. There's a lot of insects and, and gods that look like um, amphibians and all kinds of different things. And so these elders, they had painted this mural in there and there were about 70 of them in this room and they were worshiping these gods that they had painted on the wall. Now it's dark in the room, it's night there. They have, uh, each of these 70 elders have filled a censer was a, like a candle holder kind of thing on a rope. And they had put incense in that and they had burned it. And so the text tells us that the smoke of their incense had filled the room. This was not just a casual uh, undertaking by the, like they, they were deep in this adultery, spiritual adultery, um, this idol worship. They were deep in this. And so um, it's interesting to me that the 70, the number 70 is found again. The Sanhedrin, the ruling religious class of the Jewish people was a group of 70 men. They were the very ones, the Sanhedrin, who um, gave Jesus his death sentence and handed him over to the Romans. So Ezekiel is saying he's looking at what is representative of the leaders of the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel at the time, and they are worshiping other gods and they're doing it in the dark. And so God gives at this point a little commentary in the, in the text. And he says two things are going on. He says, here's what's going on with the people. Number one, they think that I don't see what they do in secret. And probably part of the reason for that was because they had done, they were doing this and they weren't getting caught. They, they weren't getting uh, discovered. And so what do we do when we're doing something we're not supposed to and we don't get discovered? We keep doing it. Um, and we're, we're gonna push it a little bit. Well, I got away with it here and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna try a little more. Maybe I'll get away with it. And so God says, look, they think that I don't see in the dark. The God who created the sun, who created light, they think I can't see in the dark. This is ridiculous. The second thing that he says was going on was that they had, um, they, they believed that God, their God had forsaken the land. And, and, and it's really curious that they would say this because if their God, if the God they worship had forsaken their land, what it means is we must not be worshiping the right God or worshiping him in the right way. And so they begin to say, okay, what other gods are there to worship that we can get the land back, that things will grow again, that, that we'll be able to get back to planting and harvesting. And so they almost, this is really odd, they almost blame God for the problems that they're having. They didn't blame themselves, they blamed God and said, well, if God, if you're not gonna do what we need you to with the land, we're just gonna worship another God. We're gonna find another God who will listen to us and who will do what we want uh, him to do. And so they have, they have kind of relegated the one true God to just another, just another power in the pantheon of false gods vying for their worship. And so you can see that this would be highly offensive to God, to their spouse, to be just another one of, of their relationships. This is really uh, difficult. 
The third vision that Ezekiel sees is uh, inside the temple compound. It's the court of women and Gentiles, and the women are weeping at this idol called uh, Tammuz. Now, Tammuz, unlike the Asherah pole, which was Canaanite, Tammuz was a Babylonian false god, and he was the god of spring vegetation, of uh, fertility and renewal. So in the spring, when everything greens up, you can imagine in the desert, you, you would think about that. We want everything to come back to life. And so part of the worship of Tammuz was that um, when it was a summer, when it got to the brutal summers and winter before spring comes back, the worshipers of Tammuz would weep for him because in, in their idea, Tammuz had been taken down to the underworld and was being held captive. And so they weeped for their God who was being uh, held captive in the underworld until spring comes again and Tammuz somehow overpowers whatever God of the underworld there is and spring comes back again and then they celebrate uh, once more. And so God has given us this commentary already, right? He said, the people think that I've abandoned the land and so they can just go out and worship whatever God they want to. And so that has infiltrated this. They, they believe that God has forsaken the land and so they have lost faith in God. And so the um, people here, they've rejected the living God and they're desperately seeking relief from everyone except the one who can actually provide that relief for them. And so they further provoke God by their worship of these other idols. Uh, the fourth image that Ezekiel sees is uh, the worst, God says. And so he takes them to kind of the temple proper between the front doors of the temple and the altar where they burnt the offerings. It's right in between this space. And, and Ezekiel sees 25 priests of God, but they have their back turned to the temple. And they have their back turned, and instead of worshiping God, they are worshiping the sun as it rises. So this was like, this was huge. Like from top to bottom, the nation of Israel has symbolically and practically turned their backs on their first love, on their husband, on their spouse, on their God, and they have committed spiritual adultery. And so what began in the darkness has now made its way to the light of day as those things often do. When God and Israel entered into their ancient sacred marriage, what are the first few things that God says to the people in what we call the Ten Commandments, but what the Jews would have recognized as this ketabah? Do you remember what the first four commands are of God, the first four tenets of this marriage relationship? Um, here's how they would have sounded in um, wedding speak. See if you recognize them. Here's what I was saying. If you go to the uh, message notes at reallifecc.us, uh, I kind of lay this out a little better. But here's what God says in his ketubah, if, if this were a wedding relationship. The first thing he says is, I am your husband. Like, I just want to make this clear. I'm the guy. I'm your husband. And so what he's saying is, I expect to have that place in your life. You should respond to me, respect me as your husband. Number two, he says, have no lovers except me, not even pictures of other lovers. And if you're married, you're like, yeah, that makes sense, okay? Don't do that. Don't uh, keep other lovers on the side. 
And, and listen, just let me tell you, don't have pictures of other lovers. And I'm not lovers that you have had, not, not like get rid of, don't have pictures of, uh, of girls that you dated or guys that you dated in your wallet or purse. Just don't do that. This is not a good, this doesn't get things started on the right foot. And listen, don't pull out the centerfold and post it on the wall. There was a guy that lived down the street from me when I was growing up. He had two daughters, which I never understood this. And in his garage, uh, on the back wall of his garage, it was plastered with all of those pictures. And if the garage door was open, anybody could see right inside the garage. That is just not a good purpose. It's not a, it's not a good thing to do. Don't do it. And so God says, look, if we're going to be married and I'm going to be your husband, don't talk about your other, your old boyfriends. Don't have pictures of other, other husbands, other people that you might be interested in. Makes sense. Number three, he says, treat me with respect as your husband and don't sully my name. Don't do things that are going to reflect bad on our family. And the fourth thing he says is, hey, look, I think that we should keep a date night every week. And on that day, I want it to just be you and me. Let's not do any work. Let's just hang out together. Let's just enjoy being together. Those are the first four tenets of God's ketubah with his bride, the nation of, of Israel. But what did the nation of Israel do instead? Exactly the opposite. Every one of those things, Israel's like, nope, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna be my only husband. I'm gonna keep pictures of other, uh, other gods, other lovers. I'm not gonna treat you with respect. I'm gonna do things that make you look bad and my family look bad. Like they just write down the line, did exactly the opposite of what God wanted. So here's the deal. When we reject kindness and mercy, the kindness and mercy of God's kingdom, what we're doing is accepting the cruelty and the malice of the culture. There's only two options here. And so when we reject God, we accept whatever else is out there. And in our case, it's this cruelty and malice of the culture. And so it's not that God has rejected the land, it's that we have chosen cruelty, the cruelty of the culture over the compassion of his kingdom. That's what's going on. That's what Ezekiel is supposed to see. That's what God wants Ezekiel to see. And so I, I was thinking about this uh, this week as I was working on this. I was like, you know, this sounds very similar to something that I have read before. What's, what's going on? What, what Ezekiel is seeing? I think I've heard this before. And so I began um, searching it out and, and looking for it. And look what I found in Matthew chapter 6. This is what Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two husbands. No one can serve two gods. For you will uh, hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Does that not sound exactly what, like what's going on in, in Israel? It's exactly what God is showing Ezekiel. That the people have tried to have another husband, another, another God, and, and what they have then is another master. A cruel, 
master, a malicious master. And so uh, here's the interesting connection. The ancient world translated the word money, the word that's translated money here, it comes from a word, actually the word is mammon. That's what the original word for money would have been, the word mammon. And the word mammon has two meanings. In the ancient world, it could either be an ancient false god associated with the desire to gain wealth. So somebody who wanted money, wanted power, wanted to have more, this idea of, of just coveting and greed, that was referred to as worship of the god mammon. The other way that word was used, mammon was used, is just in um, kind of generically meaning material wealth or the coveting of material wealth. And so greed and mammon in the Bible are linked together. And so whether it's an ancient false god of the Canaanites, the Babylonians, uh, or or some other nation there, uh, the Egyptians, or whether it's a more sophisticated idol today, an idol of power or wealth, the painful reality is that no matter how hard we may try to hide it, God sees the things that we try to shroud. God sees what we're trying to, to keep from him, what we're trying to hide from him. God knows when we're cheating on him with someone else. God understands when we've committed spiritual adultery. He knows where our true allegiance lies. And so I I want you to do something um, this morning. I want you to look at your relationship with God, look at your relationship with Jesus as a marriage. And I want you to give you a few options of how you might characterize your relationship with God just today, okay? Is your relationship with God, your marriage to God, is it a healthy marriage? Do you spend time together? Do you enjoy being together? Do you you spend more than just one day a week? Maybe we could say it this way. Are you talking to your spouse? Are you talking to God? Are you involved? Are you reading his word? Are, Are you engaged in others in conversation about him? Do you talk well about him? Is your marriage healthy? Um, maybe your marriage to God might be troubled. Like it's not, you're not in danger. You're not going anywhere. You're not, you're not cheating on God. But that marriage is just like trouble. Like you, you don't really talk to him like you should. Um, you, you're not just paying attention. Like you, you come to church, but ah, you're thinking about other things that are going on and need to happen. And so you, you have this marriage. You're, you're not running out on him, but it's just, it's not good. It's not healthy. Maybe your marriage to God is, we call it estranged. Like again, you're, you're, still, you're still married. And, and how, what we hear, the way we hear this in the cultures, people say, well, well, I believe, I believe in God, but I believe in God, but I don't go to church. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't, I don't engage conversation with, like I believe, but because that marriage relationship estranged there. Maybe you've taken it a step further and you said, look, um, I just, I don't, I'm angry with you. I don't like seeing you right now. And so maybe that relationship, maybe you've separated that relationship. You're, you're not ready to call it quits, but like, you're just, like, you're just, 
look, I kind of want to see other people, but I don't want to give up on this, you know? It was this weird kind of place. Or maybe, maybe today for, for you, it's just like you, you just flat out, you're done. Like I'm, we're divorced. Like I know God is there, but like he makes me mad or, or whatever. And I just don't think I can continue on this relationship. I, I want you to think about that because if, if we as followers of Jesus are gonna offer a viable contrast to the culture, we can't secretly worship the gods of culture and then still somehow claim kingdom allegiance. Because remember, God sees what we shroud. We, 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 can't, we can't say, God, I, I wanna be married to you and I love you, but I also love all these other things over here. We've got to privately and publicly honor our marriage covenant with God and reject spiritual adultery. We've got to serve just one God. We've got one husband in this relationship. We've got one spouse in this relationship and he needs to know it. We're in a very similar relationship. We're gonna kind of slide over here. We're in a very similar relationship as a church to Israel because God gave Israel a new home that was already there. In fact, when the Israelites move into the promised land, God says, look, I'm giving you fields that are already planted and houses that are already built. And he gave all this to, to Israel as kind of a wedding present. And he says, I'm giving you all of this uh, because I love you. And if, if we stay true to him, if Israel would have stayed true to God and to his purpose, then he would have continued to provide for the people. And so if we as a church stay true to the purpose, if we stay true to our spouse, to our God, we don't commit spiritual adultery, then we believe that he's gonna provide for us uh, as well. What's your marriage like? Who's your first love? And, and, and are we acting like it? If we're gonna get a new heart, we've gotta make sure that that heart is directly connected to God. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us and thank you for this encouragement today to, to really question like, where are we in our relationship with you? And, and God, if we're in anything but a healthy relationship with you, I pray that you would reveal that to, to us. You would open our hearts to that and you would help us see you clearly, the love that you have for us and that we might strengthen our resolve to be committed to you alone, to not cheat on you with other things that get in the way. Um, and, and maybe that's job, maybe it's family, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's children. It's just the desire to have more. God, would we follow you wholeheartedly in this marriage relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I told you that um, we're gonna share some stuff about our, our finances, so I'm gonna run through that uh, just really quickly. Julie, if you click on that next slide, there we go, then the music stops, that's good. Okay, so um, I'm gonna give you some numbers and we haven't printed any of this out because I, I, I don't want you to come back and go, well, use it, because these are changing all the time. So um, let me just give you where we are at. Right now, uh, real life, total cash on hand, we have $67,100 uh, 
access to that money right now. Uh, of that 67,000, 57,400 is invested with the Solomon Foundation. There are financing partners uh, for the building. Now, of that 57,400, Solomon requires us to have four months of mortgage payments set aside uh, for emergencies. There's an issue going on. It's just what they require of everybody. And so of that 57,000, 11,700 is gonna be earmarked to um, that four months of, of mortgage payments set aside. We also have decided we wanna keep at least 20,000 in the bank for emergencies like if a $15,000 AC unit goes out and they're all old. I'll just tell you that right now. They're all old at the Civic Center or at the, at the building. We, we've got some things we're hoping to do that's gonna uh, help that situation, but that's where we're at. And so that leaves us with a whopping amount of $25,700 uh, to remodel. How far do you think we're gonna get with $25,700? I mean, to me, that sounds like a lot of money. Uh, it's not gonna get us uh, very far. So, uh, currently, right now, we set aside $2,300 a month for rent here at the Civic Center. Our budget for the year is $140,000. And just so you're aware, our $140,000 budget hasn't changed since 2021. We have maintained the same budget. That means we haven't increased anything. We have no salaries haven't changed. Everything has been the same uh, for the last uh, three years. And I tell you that we're not, nobody's complaining. I just want you to know that we have simply maintained a budget of $140,000. Now our average giving uh, so far this year, 2023, our average weekly giving uh, has been just over $2,800. Now that's really good because at $140,000 budget, we need $2,700 a month uh, or a week to, to meet that $140,000 budget. So we're a little ahead of that, but don't get excited because January and February, we had a total shortfall of $4,300 under, under budget the first two months of the year. We made that up, thank you, in uh, April uh, or March and April. And we not only made that up, but we had a little a surplus of about $1,300 moving into May. And right now we're set to uh, bring in about $11,600 this month, which is, which is right, like we're right on the razor's edge for what we need to bring in to keep that, uh, to keep that budget. So that's where we're at currently. That's the situation. That's what we pay. That's where we're at. Um, our mortgage from the Solomon Foundation, we are uh, borrowing for the building somewhere in the neighborhood of about $315,000 to purchase the building and all the stuff and, and all the things that go on with that. Uh, that means our mortgage payment is gonna be just over $2,000 a month, about $2,050. So it's actually a little better than what we pay right now for the Civic Center and we're gonna get it all week. So that is great. Solomon has also approved us for a line of credit uh, of $135,000 and they graciously allow you to make interest only payments on that for the first five years, which is great. Except if we take out $135,000 from them, our $2,000 monthly mortgage goes to $2,900. Uh, real quickly. So then we go over what we pay uh, right now. 
Current expenses at the Haverhill School. Over the last 12 months, the utility expenses for the school, minus internet and phone, because that's on some grant thing, and so they don't keep track of that. But their, expense, their monthly expenses um, over the last 12 months have been $3,070 there. Now, obviously, that's a school. They're open all the time, the heat and cool and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you can see what we're kind of up against. We believe that we can lower that number. Obviously, we're in there. We're going to pay attention to that and make sure the lights are turned off when we're not using them, all that kind of stuff. Um, but we don't know how much we'll be able to save until we're actually in the building. And we're going to have a building seven days a week. We want it to be used. And so we're hoping to have it open for people and groups and things to happen in the building. Um, and, and so we're, we're this kind of back and forth with this. And one of the greatest energy uh, wasters in the Haverhill School building, we've found out, is the uh, large amount of exterior windows in the building. So every classroom in the classroom wing, the exterior wall of every classroom is all windows. They are single pane, glazed in windows, and in part of the building, the glaze on the outside is like gone. So huge amount of energy, cool and heat being lost through those windows. And so one of the first things we've told the architect we wanna do is take out those windows and replace them with framing and maybe go to two or three or four small windows in those exterior walls instead of all windows. Uh, we believe that will help us a lot, but making that change is going to take a lot of money to, to do just that. Now, hopefully we'd make that up on the back end in the money that we'll save on the uh, monthly expenses there, but it's still going to be a, a big job and it's going to cost money to um, do that. So here's where we're at uh, right now, looking at moving into the building. If nothing changes with the energy consumption, so if we just say $3,000 is what we're gonna spend a, a month with the energy consumption, then our mortgage and our utility bills are gonna sit between about 5,200 and 5,500 a month. Um, that's like if we add internet and stuff in there. And so that's a bottom line increase to our budget of $3,000 to $3,500 a month. That's if we don't borrow any of that other money from Solomon to do any of the remodel uh, stuff. So here's what that means for us. We need to increase our monthly giving or we would have to increase our monthly giving by a minimum of $3,000 a month um, just to maintain things as they are now, like just to move in and not do anything else. Uh, the reality is we have little money, $25,000, to do any of the renovations to the building. And so we look at the space and we go, man, we'd love to have an incredible space for our kids to learn about Jesus on their level. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a space dedicated for them and, and set up for them where it looks, they are like excited to go in there instead of just what they go into now uh, here in the breakout rooms. It'd be awesome to have that. We'd love to remodel the auditorium to provide our band with a great stage to lead us in, in worship and do other things uh, there. And then there's needed improvements. We'll switch from a, a portable camera system to a, to a fixed camera system when we get there. And so all of that is part of that process. We'd love to be, to be able to create a new front door getting into the building and a large lobby 
lobby space. Uh, and so we look at these things and we're like, man, we could carefully and conservatively spend $250,000 on renovations and still maybe not accomplish all the things that we would want to do on the building. So, so this is where, like we're in this together, right? <laughs> this is where we're at. We wanted you to know the situation. So this does not mean that we're not moving, like we're moving forward. We are buying that building. We are moving in to, uh, to that building and we will begin to meet in the new building. You just need to know that it's probably gonna look like a school and like a rented facility for us uh, in the short term. We're gonna do what we can. We're gonna do what we can when we can. We're gonna pray that God provides for us each step of the way as we're ready to do the next thing. And so what do you hear me say here all the time at Real Life? If we're gonna reach, uh, help every person possible find real life in Jesus uh, and look more like him every day, it's gonna take every person present. And that's true today. Um, the reality is for churches all across the country and around the world, the most people don't think ahead of time about their financial gifts to God. Like the average church goer just gives some of whatever cash they have in their pockets or their purses on Sunday morning. And what that means is that most people don't plan to give. We just participate in giving. We give some of what we have. But the idea that you read about in the Bible when it talks about giving to God is it talks about giving our first fruits to God. And, and to give your first fruits mean that you have to plan for that. It takes some forethought and some intentionality because if you're giving God the very first of what you get, you gotta have a plan for the rest of it, right? And so this is the reason God designed our giving this way. Um, if you're going to give the first and the best, then you have to have, uh, uh, you have to do better with what's left, right? You've got to plan and prep for this. You've got to have a plan. And so here's what I'm asking you to do. To help make this dream of a home for our church a reality, I'm going to ask that you plan your giving and that you take whatever the next step is uh, in that giving, and so if you're one of those people, and I don't know who you are, we don't like keep good track of this, like we're not watching this at all, but you know you, and so wherever you fit here, you, you, I'm talking to you in that, okay? Um, and so if you don't currently give consistently, then I just ask that now is a time for you to prayerfully take that step and, and, and learn to give on a regular or a recurring basis. So whatever that is for you and your budget every week, every two weeks, whenever you get paid once a month, whatever it is for you. If you don't currently give consistently, the next step for you would be making that determination. I'm going to give and I'm going to do it on a consistent basis. If you already give consistently, maybe it's time to consider practicing what we call percentage giving in the Bible. So instead of just giving some of whatever's in your pocket, you actually say, okay, I'm gonna give this percentage of my income uh, back to God through the church. So maybe that's 3%, maybe it's 7%. 
Um, for a long time now, Andy and I, just so you know that we're committed to this as well, Andy and I give at least 10% of our combined income back to the church. That's a spiritual discipline. It was hard to get there. It took us, like we were raising kids and having things. It took a while to get there. Um, but uh, that's where we're at. And so we believe that's God's money and that's how we honor God with what he's given us. And so if you currently just give, maybe it's time to go, okay, what percentage can I give so I can do that consistently? If you currently practice percentage giving, maybe it's time to consider increasing your giving by one or three or five percent, however God moves your heart. For the last several years, we've had several people here at, at Real Life who, on top of their normal giving to the general fund, have been giving a percentage to uh, directly to our building fund on top of their regular giving. And so that was an increase in their overall percentage giving by dedicating that money directly to our building fund. Now, now, some of you may already practice percentage giving. You're, you're giving, maybe that's at the 10% level. You're giving and you're giving consistently and, you, and you're, you're giving on a schedule, but maybe you have the opportunity to make a one-time gift directly to our building fund. And so if maybe that's your next step. And so I wanna encourage you in that. And so what I'm asking you to do is to make a plan and to prayerfully consider it as a family. Maybe you sit down with your spouse, with your kids, and you talk about what that might look like. It's a great way to encourage your kids, to help them understand what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so I will tell you, if you're gonna give to expect some hiccups, Satan doesn't want us to have a building. He certainly doesn't want you to experience the blessings that come when you trust God and you step out in faith. And so um, if you're able, then our encouragement is to, to give. And maybe that's a gift even today. You can write a check or you can jump on the app and you can say, here's what we're gonna do and we're gonna be consistent in that. I want you to remember three things though. The first one is that God loves a cheerful giver. God loves people who give because they want to give, because they want to see the kingdom grow, not because they feel like they have to. And I don't want you to feel like you have to. Like we're moving into this building, it's a big deal, it's gonna take us all working together to make it happen. Um, but this is just where we're at right now. Uh, you know, Andy and I, we give to real life because we love God because we love the mission and ministry of this church and because we love you, our church family. And so that is just God's money and it, and it goes to him and we give it because we love what God is doing here. So God loves a cheerful giver. Second, when we give, we show God that we trust him with the things that are practically speaking very important to us in our survival. Like we need money, right? We gotta put food on the table, we gotta put gas in the car, we gotta do the things that need to be done. But when we give to God what we need to survive, I think God honors that. And he promises to provide in supernatural ways, especially when we practice percentage giving as a means to honor him with the wealth that he's given us. The third thing I would tell you is that we're not giving to a place, Haverhill, as a school, as a building. We're not giving to a place. We're giving toward a purpose. The purpose is to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like him every day. And we believe that having a place will help us fulfill and meet that purpose, that purpose that is greater than 
greater than we are, greater than ourselves. It's a purpose that can only be accomplished if God is involved. And, and God often gets involved through his people. So as we move forward, we hope to have uh, more specific numbers and we'll make those available to you on remodel costs. We'll also begin to say, what are we able to do as a church? What are the combined talents and abilities that we have, uh, things that we can accomplish there and save some money and not having to have a contractor come in? So we'll be making lists of those things and planning those days for once we get in the building to make that um, happen. Uh, but I want you to think about it this way. We're moving into a fixer-upper, not a finished home, okay? Uh, so we are gonna move in, and we're gonna move in somewhat quietly, and we're gonna do some work, and, and when we think we're ready, then we'll have a big grand opening. We'll invite everybody uh, to come. And so uh, over the next several months, as we move into the building over the rest of the year, there's gonna be challenges. It may get frustrating, things may not move. I'm gonna tell you right now, things are not gonna move as fast as I want them to. Uh, every Sunday morning now that we show up in the back of my head going, I cannot wait till I don't have to stretch out another cord or wrap it up or like it gets worse as the time um, goes on. Anyway, there's gonna be challenges, it's gonna be frustrating, but we've got to keep at it. We've gotta keep focused on our purpose and not just this place. And if we work together, if we follow God, he will see it through because what God begins, he sees through to completion. Um, so just so you know, we are looking at moving into the building. I hope we'll see what it actually shakes in, but I hope uh, the 1st of August, which would be maybe August. We're gonna close August 1st. It's possible that we could have our first service there August 6th. Uh, so. Be, be watching, pay attention, uh, be praying about how you might give, what you might do, uh, how God wants to use you as we move forward in this. Okay, Easton.